Well, it is such an honor to be here. Um, I remember when I first heard of the amazing work that Phyllis Schlafly had done with her six children, I thought, how on earth is that possible? And this is this is back, you know, before I was even married. And now I have uh, my own six children, and I'm trying to do that. Only six. It's a good start. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and, and so I really see, she was such an inspiration for me of thinking, you know what, it's possible to both have a family, be a, a, not just a mom where you, you, you know, send them off to boarding school or something and do your own thing, but actually a real full-time mother, but also have an active role in the world and speak for all those things that are so important uh, to the next generation. So um, I, I want to thank her for that model she has been to so many young women, um, myself among them. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about a topic that was, as Elizabeth mentioned, dear to Mrs. Schlafly's heart, which is that of judicial activism. And that's something that we have seen, unfortunately, um, I guess it's it's definitely in the news lately. We see, we see a lot about it, but just want to talk about how we got here to a place where um, the courts have taken so much control of our country and of the things. Rather than as the Congress as the, as the Constitution designed it, Congress writing our laws, we've got courts writing our laws, and why judicial confirmations have become this third rail of politics, this uh, explosive event in our nation. Uh, you all saw it happen last year with Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, and unfortunately. Uh, we are beginning to see it uh, unfold again. I think it's it's funny to watch, um, you know, how it's impossible for them to let these things go. I found a great quote uh, that Phyllis Schlafly said at the, in 2016. This is right around just after Justice Scalia had passed away, and she was talking about people still getting, still bringing up, even in 2016, the stuff about Clarence Thomas. She said most people would get over a defeat that occurred nearly 25 years ago, but feminists hold grudges forever. So... Yeah, we're, we're seeing that played out in real time. So how did we get here where the Supreme Court was this huge focus of American politics? And I think the answer is it, is, it has become a focus because it has been an incredibly useful tool for the left to achieve its goals in American society. There are so many of its goals, um, and, and Elizabeth read a bunch of them, that, that are frightening and that it's actually, it has achieved, but many times did not, at the time that they happen, have the public will or interest to achieve. That Congress was not willing to vote uh, to reach these liberal ends, and they had to find another way around it. And that way, for most of the last century, was very successfully achieved through the courts. For a long time, even the Republicans didn't realize, I think, what was happening. The courts were viewed uh, by Republican presidents as well as Democrats. Well, uh, the Democrats were, were doing a great job on getting liberals on the court. The, the Republicans also were doing a great job of getting liberals on the court uh, because they weren't, they, they weren't approaching it the right way. Eisenhower, for example, uh, he, he appointed two of the most liberal justices in American history. Earl Warren, Chief Justice Earl Warren, like the, the classic worst, you know, worst case scenario for liberal activism, he was appointed by a Republican president. Do you know why? Not because they looked at his judicial record and said, this guy's going to be great. It's because he at, was running for president and stepped out and let, and let Eisenhower win and, and supported him in his home state of California. So it was a political shit that he kind of handed, oh, thanks so much for stepping aside here. You can have a, a, you know, the Chief Justiceship of the Supreme Court. He appointed Bill Brennan, another classic liberal on the court. Again, why? Not even because he had an R after his name, which at least, you know, I guess whatever for whatever that means, Warren had one of those. 
Bill Brennan is because he said, well, I'm getting him to an election and I really want to make sure I win the Northeast. So let's pick a Catholic Democrat because there's a lot of those up there and maybe they'll vote for me. Like, really? This is your calculus? Um, it, it probably didn't even make a difference in the election. And we had, for the, a life-tenured um, Supreme Court justice who was an, a judicial activist. Nixon appointed Justice Blackman, the author of Roe versus Wade. Right? So this is, we have a really long and bad history on judges. But you know what? Back then, there also, we didn't have the same kind of judicial wars we do now where every single nomination is a huge firestorm between left and right. You know why? Because they were winning anyway. Why would you fight these nominations, right? You're already, you, the president's done it for you. Suddenly they started to ramp up a lot more when Ronald Reagan decided with Ed Meese, his attorney general, realized, okay, we gotta do something about this. And Reagan had seen as governor of California already how the state, uh, the, how this, the things he wanted to do in the state that were gonna be great policy were being blocked every time by the courts. So he realized, oh, okay, I see where this is happening. They're doing it. They know they can't do it in the actual sphere of electorate politics. It's things that the, the people don't necessarily want, but they get judges to do it for them. So he knew it's important to have judges who have a principled approach. And when we, of course, everyone saw that as soon as they, they, they tried to attack William Rehnquist, as he was becoming chief justice, um, they kind of gave up on Scalia and they let him go through with unanimous uh, votes. So that's exciting. They, but then once they realized they had won the Senate in uh, 1984, they said, we need a new policy. We can start blocking these guys. And that's when Robert Bork was nominated. So we saw the, the, a historic level of opposition, of unfair characterizations of him, of his, his record. And we developed a whole verb that came out of it. The verb to bork someone basically means to unfairly attack them and defeat them in, in that manner. Uh, because the left suddenly went so crazy. At the time, the right had, was not at all prepared. They thought, oh, judges just go through, and as long as they're really well qualified, no problem. And no one questioned that Bork was very well qualified. I mean, he was, he was a renowned scholar, so they thought he'll be fine. No. It, that was, they, they, the left had decided we're not going to let any more of these Scalia-type people through, right? So um, they, were take, they were caught flat-footed. The left is running millions of dollars of TV ads, Right, they've got uh, they've got Gregory Peck narrating TV ad. First time in history they had they, there was a TV ad against a Supreme Court justice. And on the right, you had people like Charlton Heston saying, "I'll narrate an ad. Give me the ad. We'll do an ad for him." And they're going, "No, nope, no, nope, we don't want to. We don't want to engage on this." You had Robert Bork Jr., who was willing to go on TV and saying, "Hey, I'll defend and try to explain my father's record." And he got a call from his own father saying, "No, this is this is not appropriate. We don't want to fight this way." Well, we learned after that fight. You can't just you, you cannot just lay hold, lay back and let them do it because they have money. They had hundreds of organ, or, or groups organized to defeat this nomination, and it succeeded. And as a result, afterwards, we ended up with Anthony Kennedy. So imagine the difference historically if we'd had Robert Bork in the court versus Anthony Kennedy. It worked. There was still a Republican nominee, but they they certainly succeeded in changing the kind of nominee we had. Fast forward, and well, I'll point out one other interesting thing. So the, the, there were some important characteristics about what happened with Bork. One is that we had lost the Senate, right? So we need to remember always the importance that we ha if we cannot maintain control of both the presidency and the Senate, that's when things get hairy. The other important issue, and we found this if you look historically over judge, uh, judicial nominations, it was a swing seat he was replacing. The biggest factor here is this: the court hung in the balance. If they realized if Bork was replacing Powell, who was, a, who was a swing vote, 
they could really shift the court dramatically, and that's when things heat up. So fast forward to 1991, Clarence Thomas is nominated to replace Thurgood Marshall, one of the most liberal justices on the court. And of course, Clarence Thomas already was well known within Washington as being incredibly conservative, incredibly, uh, he was been dramatically attacked during his time working in the Reagan administration. Um, so they knew it was gonna be a very different regime. So of course, that's when you see things ramping up again. They start, they launch these attacks on Clarence Thomas before, even before the Anita Hill thing. It's actually shocking how similar it is to the Kavanaugh trial. My daughter, my 13-year-old, read um, the Justice Thomas's autobiography, uh, My Grandfather's Son, which I highly recommend this summer. And she said, oh my gosh, mom, this is, this is exactly like Kavanaugh. And it really, it's, it's kind of un, unsettling how many parallels there are, but he they tried to attack him and misconstrue his record initially, and when that, when that didn't work, there were allegations brought in, and then they were leaked from the Senate Democrats. Surprise. So, anything sound familiar? Then they went into a circus of hearings. Yep, this is sounding kind of, you know, familiar. There was no, there was no corroboration. In fact, her story changed a few different times. So it's, it's exactly the same playbook. And that's what they, they, they did to try to defeat him. Uh, amazingly, he was actually confirmed. And, uh, and got onto the court. But we learned a lot during that process, too. We learned that there, there's nothing they won't sink to. We learned that it doesn't, they'll, they'll make up stuff, they'll come after you personally if trying to misconstrue your record isn't enough. Fast forward then to uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. It was one thing that Molly and I learned that was so important watching this process is that the people who had learned from history were the ones who were, in often cases, key to making this confirmation possible. So it was people like Don McGahn, the White House counsel. He described his, the, watching the Thomas hearings as this incredibly formative moment of his life as a lawyer. That, so when, when these kind of things started coming out, it, he saw it in that lens going, oh, this is, this is the Thomas hearings again. Uh, Leader McConnell, he knew and had been in the Senate through, from, you know, through Bork, through Thomas, and so he saw, saw this coming and knew this what, what to expect when this is happening. Senator Grassley, who was chairing the Judiciary Committee, he specifically talked about, he said, we, we were trying to figure out how do we run this so it doesn't turn into the same kind of circus that Thomas uh, and Hill's hearings hap happened to be. And actually, Grassley and McConnell, for that reason, were trying to avoid having hearings in the first place, because they said, we can't have every single person who alleges something jump into a hearing, and we saw how it, that turned into a crazy process for Thomas. It was the, some of the younger senators who hadn't lived through that themselves who said, oh no, we have, to, we have to have a hearing on everything. And they said, well, does that mean the next time someone makes a crazy allegation, we have to have a hearing for them too? So it's interesting. Some of, some of these people who saw it and lived through it, they, they had a real backbone, and I think that's what part of what helped him make it through the process. And going back to some of the, I think, the, the feminine genius of Phyllis Schlafly's, there were also, the reason he his nomination succeeded was really due in so many cases to incredibly brave women. And I wanna just talk about a few of those women who made a major difference. Uh, one of them is Ashley Kavanaugh. She was such an inspiration to learn about. She is a woman of prayer. We, we uh, learned about how before his confirmation, or for his nomination even, she'd already been through a tough process at the DC Circuit with, with her husband's confirmation. She was literally praying, let this cup pass from me. I don't wanna have to go through this again. And of course, she didn't have any idea what they, how bad it would really get. But through the process, we talked to so many of her friends who said she was the one going through it much more closely, and yet she was giving us support. 
She was encouraging us, and she'd be sending around prayers. They'd be sending around uh, different pieces of worship music they were listening to, and she was she just was a real force. She had worked in the White House. Um, she had the desk right outside President Bush's office, and she was there on 9-11. So she had the experience of having to live through a major crisis and continue to push forward when you're scared. They didn't know if the White House was going to be targeted when you're being attacked from every side. She would she would you know find a Bible verse that meant something to her, write on a post-it and put it in her desk so that when she started feeling discouraged, she'd go back and look at that. And the same thing happened um, in, during this process. And the verse that interesting, the verse that she had that she had found that, that really meant a lot to her, later, right before the day before his final hearing, she had a devotional she was going through and that was the verse of the day. And it was just one of those moments where it's like Okay, I know God has got this, right? Um, Senator Susan Collins is another one, and she's someone that I'm not used to praising this way um, because I don't agree with a lot of the things, a lot of the positions she takes as a senator, but I have to say the, the amount that Molly and I have learned about the way she approached this confirmation process, she, her strength and her courage was sine qua non for the, for the accomplishment of this. She had not been there and been in the courageous person against the hostility she was facing, we would not have Justice Brett Kavanaugh today. She started receiving threats even before he was nominated. As soon as there was a vacancy, she was having coat hangers sent to her office in Maine and in Washington as threats about abortion. Um, and uh, people who were, who were starting to threaten her employees, eventually one of her employees had to leave because she was getting such vile and, and, and frightening threats. This is a woman who had spent her, who really enjoyed spending her career working, helping uh, social security claims and things like that. And she, and she said, how ironic is it that in the name of women, they're forcing this woman out of public service? That's, that is totally backwards. Even before things got crazy, she took this, the nomination more seriously than almost any of her other colleagues. She is not a lawyer herself, but hired a bunch of lawyers to help her go through his record. She knew it down to the footnote. There was a, there was a lawyer who was saying, well, what, do you, what do you think about his opinion in this case? And she said, oh, you haven't read footnote four then, right? I mean, she, she knew it cold, and she spent two hours with him. In, his, in a meeting, just talking through all the cases and, uh, and going through everything. When they finally finished, because she, she, she didn't want to miss a vote, it was time for a vote, have to cut it off even though we're going, and uh, uh, then Judge Kavanaugh said, oh, well, we can come back and meet you know, an, again, and all of his team is like, no, 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 you made it through, this is a tough one, don't go, don't, you know, don't go back into the lion's den here. Um, but it's interesting, because they, 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 she did agree to let's, let's continue this, this discussion, and the date they set up to discuss it was Friday, that Friday in September, which was the right, the right before the Christine Blasey Ford allegations came out, but after they were already rumored about, so she was one of the first people who got to ask him, what is this about? What you know? What's going on here? And that was really key to she to her understanding his position on it. And uh, she also came in with a appropriate level of concern looking into things, but also skepticism. She said, if you she looked at the date in that letter and said it's September, and this letter says July. Why are you holding onto this letter this whole time? Is something something odd going on here? You know, why would Senator Feinstein not release this letter? And so um, through the process, she was very systematic. And anyone who watched her speech that Friday afternoon before the vote, 
I think, saw one of the more systematic approaches to due process. She went through his whole record. She talked about the actual evidence in the case. And instead of letting, like many people would say, of course, women are these passionate, emotional ones versus the rational men. Well, I think a lot of the rational men in the Senate got a real lesson from her that day. She was an absolute stateswoman and really went through in a very systematic way and ultimately took a vote that, you know, we'll see what happens in 2020, but it, there are a lot of people still angry with her. So I, it, was, it was a vote she was politically vulnerable on, but I think it was the right vote. And you could hear, hear in her own voice the confidence that she had that she was doing the right thing as hard as it was. Um, Rachel Mitchell is another woman who I think did not get enough credit during the process. This is the woman for pros uh, the prosecutor from Arizona who was called in to question Christine Blasey Ford during that reopened hearing because the Judiciary Committee at the time had only men on it. They didn't want the, the optics of a man questioning her. She was ridiculed by people. She was made fun of on Saturday Night Live. She was, you know, people said, oh, she's, she's just kind of blah. She's not really answering these questions. Well, this is a woman whose whole job is professionally is questioning victims of sex crimes, trying to find out the real truth. And she said when they, they interviewed her, um, if you want a bulldog, I'm not your man or I'm not your woman. Um, because that's not what I'm going to do. I have to go back and, and talk to victims is my day job. I want to find out. I want to get to the bottom of this and find out what's the truth here. And she did that in a very gentle way, in it, but in a systematic way. And ultimately, when she finished, she had uncovered all sorts of things like what's up with this fear of flying thing that Christine Blasey Ford said she's afraid of flying, but she flies all the time to like Tahiti for surf travel, right? Or the inconsistencies in her story. How, how is it you don't know how you got home, but it's, it's so far away? And Molly and I took that drive. It is a long and circuitous route to get to from Columbia Country Club, where she said the party was near, to her home. There aren't... It's, it, I don't think there's sidewalks the whole way. I don't think there's lights the whole way. You can't walk home from that thing at night. So you had to get home somehow. How, do you, how did you get home? Um, she uncovered so many of these inconsistencies and then presented it to uh, the Republican members of the Senate the next day. She said that not only is that not enough evidence to convict him, this isn't really enough evidence to get a search warrant. This is a very weak story. She got a standing ovation from that crowd and was very influential on some of those really key swing votes in the Senate. So I think her work um, deserves a lot of credit. And then finally, Leland Kaiser. She is one of the bravest women that we got to meet in this story. She's the woman who was a friend of Christine Blasey Ford's. She herself is a lifelong Democrat, very liberal, um, did not want Kavanaugh on the court. But when she heard that she was being mentioned as someone who was at this party, did not remember any of it. And she said that, she said she wanted to support her friend, but she didn't remember it but then later received a whole lot of pressure from their common friends to change her story. And we reported on that, and I gotta say, that's one of the, thing, one of the few things that this new New York Times book on Kavanaugh got right, and they actually got some on-the-record quotes from her on this, elaborating on how she felt this, this story didn't even add up. It was not the kind of party they went to. She often did. She was often the designated driver for uh, Christine Blasey Ford, but she uh, did not have any memory of anything like this. The story just didn't add up to her. And she, after the, her friends um, were threatening to disclose information about her own history with addiction and things like that to try to convince her to change her story, she said, oh no, this whole thing stinks to high heaven. I, don't, I, this, I have very little confidence in this story. That has been incredibly difficult for her. It's caused, it's, it's caused an increase in some of the health problems that she's suffering from. It's caused her to lose a lot of friendships. Um, it's not even what she wanted to see happen politically, 
but she knew that she had to stand for what was true. And that commitment to the truth, I think, is something that we all can really um, celebrate and thank her for. Uh, you know, meanwhile, Christine Blasey Ford, for example, had this GoFundMe where she raised almost a million dollars for her security detail and whatever else. Uh, Leland Kaiser's son started one. I, I, I think it's, you know, got a few hundred uh, in it. So it's, you think this is, this is what, the, what the people around them are supporting. Everyone, everyone is praising her, but Leland then got a lot of friends lost as a result of the process. So, you know, looking at these, this recent book, um, and I think a lot of you probably have seen the, the coverage of it. There's, there's stories they tell only half of. They tell the part that makes Kavanaugh look bad, but they don't tell all the part about, oh, the woman doesn't believe it. Or in some cases, the woman claims this never happened, but we're still going to print the story anyway, even just because it, it, it uh, you know, makes him look bad. There was a great quote that Ryan Lovelace, a, a reporter, um, uncovered from De Deborah Katz. This is Christine's lawyer, that, that talks about their, inter their what their goal was in this, in this uh, whole effort. And it wasn't that they knew they were going to be able to defeat him. They thought it was a decent chance they weren't. But she said, he will always have an asterisk next to her name, and specifically said that they wanted that when he takes a scalpel to Roe versus Wade, that we know who he is now. And I think that was, it's important that we know, and that's part of what motivated Christine, she says. So we know that this was part of their goal, was to, to, to delegitimize him. We have Anita Hill, there's a, re a new documentary that Fox Nation's putting out, and uh, there's a story that one of the senators involved tells of talking to Anita Hill afterwards, and she says, I was pushed forward by, these, by the abortion lobby. They really want, I didn't want to come forward, but they wanted me to come forward. There's this theme going out uh, through this. They're willing to do you know, anything to attack people because that is so important to the left. It's one of these many areas where the court has taken over something that belongs in the hands of the people, and they, they will do anything to defend that decision and these other decisions that have taken away the rights that are really ours under the Constitution. I think the, the efforts we've seen are particularly con uh, concerning because it's not just about attacks on Clarence Thomas or Brett Kavanaugh. It's really attacks on the independence of the judiciary. They, they would like to be able to threaten and intimidate judges so that they will rule the way they want, whether that means threatening them by saying, we're not going to let you on the court in the first place, or don't worry, you may have a life tenure, but I'm still, I, we still can wreck your reputation. I think that's what they're trying to do. We have now Senator Whitehouse, who recently submitted a, an amicus brief to the Supreme Court saying, if you don't rule my way, we're going to maybe restructure you. We're going to pack the court with enough judges so that the conservatives will now again be in, in the minority. That's the level of um, just crass uh, threats that we are seeing against the court. And it's, it is a real threat to our own judicial independence. We need judges who are not going to be intimidated. It's about intimidating the next nominee as well. Because imagine if you were on that short list and wanting, deciding whether you want to put your, your own reputation and career on the line, but not to mention that, your family. And knowing that all of them are going to be attacked as well. They want, to, they want the best men and women out there not to want to put their their families through that. I personally know people who've taken themselves out of consideration for important judicial positions because of that of those threats. And I don't want that to be uh, the future of this country. Um, I'll end, I guess, with a pass a, a scripture passage that was we learned was really important to Justice uh, 
Kavanaugh during this process and also had been important to Justice Thomas uh, during his own confirmation process. Sunday, July 8th was the day before Kavanaugh was nominated and he was scheduled to be lector at his church for the 5.30 p.m. mass. At this point, uh, his, his team, there was this kind of pr almost primary season where he was trying to figure out who's gonna be the nominee and his he, had, he had a team of clerks that were helping him. They've been working really hard but they didn't think he was gonna get the nomination. And uh, he was on his way to, to, re, to mass and he read, he was preparing and read the passage and he was so moved by it and he, he thought it really spoke to where he was and sent it on to his clerks saying this is really significant. And it was a passage from 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. It ends with I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions and constraints for the sake of Christ for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, at the time, he thought that was God give, trying to give him strength because he wasn't going to get this nomination that he really thought he would be a great <laughs> nominee for. Um, I think he, later he realized that he needed that even more strength than he had realized, and he needed it for the confirmation process. It gave me chills when I was rereading Justice Thomas's autobiography and saw that that's the exact same passage he was praying during his own confirmation hearing. And he was also praying the same passage that, um, that Ashley Kavanaugh was, was uh, praying at the same time, let this cup pass for me. And he talked about the importance of, we always focus on the let this cup pass for me, but we forget the next line. It's not my will, but yours be done. And so just to leave us with a little hope that we have strength and in, in the weakness that we sometimes can perceive in how frustrating the political process is and the cultural wars are, when we are weak, then we are strong. So it's, it's really a matter of we need to understand what has been happening in, in, in the culture around us. We need to react to it. We can't just sit on our hands. And this is why Molly and I wrote the book. If we don't understand what the left is doing in these cases to try to take over our country using the courts, we won't be able to fight back. So we need to learn from all these things, learn from what has been done in each of these cases so we can respond better next time because this isn't the last time. We are gonna need strength, not just for responding to the continued threats and intimidation against Justice Kavanaugh, but for whenever the next vacancy will be, it's going to be, if, especially if it's Donald Trump replacing someone who's on the left side of the bench, can you imagine how, how upsetting people, this will be for the left? It will be complete meltdown. Um, we have to be ready, but we can have confidence that uh, when we are weak, he is strong. So thank you.